take your Bible, turn with me tonight to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Looking forward to starting a new study with you on Wednesday nights here in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, a wonderful message that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preached very early in His ministry here on this earth. And so tonight we're not going to get very far at all into the sermon itself. I want to give you a little bit of background because I think it really helps us to understand who Christ was preaching to and why He was preaching this message. And then we'll just uh, dip our toes into the beginning of this wonderful, deep pool of wisdom that comes from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Before we begin reading in Matthew chapter 5, I want you to think with me, and I'll catch you up if you don't already know this in your mind, but I want, to, I want you to think with me where Christ was and what He was doing in His earthly ministry when He preached the Sermon on the Mount. If you look back at your Bible in Matthew chapter 4, the beginning of this chapter is a very famous event that took place in Christ's life. It's when, after spending 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness without food, that Satan came to him and tempted him three different times. Satan came to our Lord when he was physically weak and tried to get him to follow after Satan and to reject his heavenly Father. You know, you would think that the devil would look at Jesus and say, well, that's God in human flesh. I'm not going to try to attack Him. And yet, if you know your Bible, you know that this isn't the first time that Satan tried to come after God. In fact, that's why Satan was cast out of heaven in the first place, was because he tried to be equal with God. And so Satan doesn't demonstrate fear in his willingness to attack even God here Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. And after Jesus fends off Satan's temptations by, of course, using the Word of God and quoting Scripture to him on three different occasions, then Jesus begins to travel around a bit. And during his travels, and they are listed for us here in chapter 4, he begins calling more disciples, more followers, more of those who became what we know as his apostles. Some of those are lift, listed out here in verse, or chapter 4, verses 18, 19, 20, 21. But I want you to notice one verse here in Matthew chapter 4 that I think is really key to us understanding the Sermon on the Mount that begins in chapter 5. Look at verse 17. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. The Bible says, From that time... Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So really, Jesus is beginning His preaching ministry that He had here for some amount of time as part of His earthly ministry. And He begins to preach this message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand couple of important thoughts to consider as we begin our study on the Sermon, of the Sermon on the Mount. And that first word, repent. To repent means to 
turn away from something and to turn towards something else. Jesus was calling on these people to repent, to turn away from their sin, from their own way, and rather to choose to follow after the Lord. And he gives them a reason why they should repent. That's the second thing I want you to notice in this verse. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom is near. Now, think about his audience. Jesus was speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. They had been looking for this kingdom for many, many generations. They had been waiting for this wonderful time when the kingdom would be set up, that the Jews would be restored to their former glory. Yes, at this time there was a temple, Herod's temple. Yes, the city of Jerusalem was in existence, but Israel as a nation had been subjugated by Rome. Before that, other kingdoms going clear back to the time really of Babylon. So you can imagine the excitement of the people. And, and in fact, as you read in the later verses, verse 24 and 25 of chapter 4, it says, And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those that were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those had, that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, and from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and beyond Jordan. Jesus is speaking to oppressed people who had experienced outside oppression for many generations. And He's promising to them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you had lived during this time period, if you had been one of these Jewish, part of the Jewish multitude, there's a very strong possibility that you would have wanted to follow this man and hear what his message was. The interesting thing, though, while many came to hear Jesus' message, there were only a few that truly followed him and trusted in him. The people thought he was calling all of this was a grassroots campaign, right? He was calling all the people together. They were going to see this kingdom restored and they were going to see this kingdom of heaven come together. And they all came to listen. But the message they heard was not the message that they expected to hear. We live in a world today that wants to hear some good news. You turn on the news. It's bad news, bad news, bad news. Bad news because of wars. Bad news because of oppression. Bad news because maybe there's a tropical storm or hurricane headed our way. There's bad news everywhere you look. So when someone comes along promising good news, people say, I want to hear it. And Jesus was promising good news. And you know, Jesus promises good news for us today as well. But when people hear the good news that Jesus has to share, and when people hear the good news of the gospel that we share today, not everybody wants to hear it. But as we study this message out, and it's going to take us some period of weeks to do this, I'm looking forward to hearing the message that Jesus had as He expands upon this idea, repent because the kingdom of heaven is 
at hand. Lots followed. If you get clear to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 7 in the book of Matthew, you can look over there really quickly. It says very simply that there were many, and it came to pass when Jesus ended these sayings, the people were astonished at His doctrine, for He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. They were astonished. They were amazed. It wasn't what they expected because Jesus spoke with authority. So as we study this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, let us hear the authoritative word of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that we serve a God who is in charge, who speaks with authority. Jesus spoke in a day when people were scared, when people were afraid, when people were oppressed. And He spoke a message with authority. Why could Jesus speak with such authority? Was it because Jesus was a rich person? No, not by this world's standard of wealth. Jesus was very poor. In fact, Scripture says He didn't even have a place to lay His head. Was Jesus speaking because He had a, had a great army of soldiers around Him? Well, not soldiers like you and I think of soldiers. Jesus spoke with authority because Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus spoke with authority because as God in human flesh, He spoke the truth. And I believe it is the truth that we need more than anything else in this day that we live. We need to hear the truth. We need to take that truth and apply it to our lives. This message that Jesus preached, it's a long sermon. It's going to take us a long time to work through it. But this message is extremely practical. And it's, I think, extremely applicable to where we live today. So let's Look here at this message that Jesus had to preach. As Jesus is talking to these people and saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Perhaps they would have wondered, Well, am I eligible to enter this kingdom? Am I righteous enough to gain entrance? I mean, think about it. The only example of religious expression that they saw generally in the streets those days were the Pharisees. Those who said that you had to keep this list of standards to maintain an outward show of religiosity. But Jesus' standard was different. He would show them a different way. Jesus' standard is not based on outward performance. Rather, it's based on inward heart change. Jesus, in the first part of this sermon, demonstrates for us the standards of conduct that are expected of a member of His kingdom. This is what it looks like if you're going to be part of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said elsewhere in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He said in Luke 19, 10, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. So who gets to be part of this kingdom? Let's begin, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain. He didn't go up there to get away from the multitude. He got up there to give himself a vantage point from which he could speak and the people could hear him. 
It says, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Jesus sat down. I am going to stand up to teach you tonight, since that's more common in our culture that the teacher stands up. But in this day and in this culture, it was common for the teacher to sit in the audience to stand. Wouldn't you like that? You'd probably fall asleep less in church if you were the one standing up. But uh, it wouldn't be very comfortable. And you say, what's wrong with that church? They, they bring us to church and make us stand. And he sits up there and teaches that lazy, lazy preacher. So I won't do that because I understand culturally that may not be what we're used to. But it is interesting to note that Jesus was sitting and they were all there standing, watching and listening to him. Jesus said then, I'm sorry, in verse number two, it says, And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here we have the first of what we know as the Beatitudes. Beatitudes, or blessings. This word means happy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. One commentator said it this way, in the first and last Beatitudes, Jesus declares God's kingdom to be present for those who are blessed. And we'll get to those later Beatitudes later. But listen to the rest of this. In the intervening verses, he refers to future consolation. Partial recompense may come in this age, but complete fulfillment of Jesus' promises often requires waiting for the age to come. When Jesus is preaching here, yes, there is blessing, there is joy, there is happiness in doing these things. But the true fulfillment of all of this that we're going to experience and learn from over the next few weeks comes when we reach heaven someday. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is present tense. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Pharisees, remember, taught an outward appearance. You keep all of these laws to do all of these things, and that's how to gain favor with God. Jesus said, you're like whited sepulchers. You're like gravestones that are painted fresh and white, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Jesus wants our service to Him to come from a heart that is desiring to serve Him. But when you read these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, it kind of sounds like a negative thing, doesn't it? Poor in spirit. We don't think of poor as being a good thing. And yet here He's referring to this as a, a virtuous thing, a good thing. This is not talking about somebody who's lacking in faith, but rather someone who understands their own lack of power and spiritual ability apart from Christ. The poor in spirit. These are people who understand their need. Three things about the poor in spirit. We know, first of all, the poor in spirit understand the problem of their own sin. The poor in spirit understand the problem of their own spirit. Someone who's poor in spirit is someone who says, I know I'm not enough. I have a problem and I need help. Somebody that would be rich would be somebody who says, I've got everything I need. Somebody who's poor says, I need help. The poor in spirit understand the problem of their own sin. Romans chapter 3 verses 9 and 10 say it this way. What then? 
Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. The poor in spirit understands the problem of their own spirit. If we are going to be heirs of the kingdom of heaven, we have to understand the problem of our own sin. Say, so this is Wednesday night, right? Everybody here knows about sin. That's why they're here on Wednesday night. I think it's important to constantly remind ourselves that yes, even those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, we still have a problem of sin. And the only answer for that sin is found in Jesus Christ. We should never get to the place that we walk around in pride and arrogance and say, why well, I no longer have a problem with sin. No, as long as you live in this world, in this flesh, you will have a problem with sin. Sin is a powerful force. Sin is something that we all struggle with. And I think it's important, yes, even for those who are watching online or those who are here in person on a Wednesday night to understand we are all sinners. And we've come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. It doesn't matter your background, Jew or Greek doesn't matter your financial situation, doesn't matter your academic level of achievement, it doesn't matter how much your paycheck is every week, it doesn't even matter how long you've been in church or how many Bible verses you've memorized, you are a sinner. I am a sinner. The poor in spirit understands the problem of their sin. Secondly, very simply, I think we can also see the poor in spirit understand their inability to save themselves. Because of your sin, you deserve death. Continuing on back there in Romans chapter 3, verse 11 and 12 say, There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Say, boy, he's really, Paul there in Romans is really piling on. There's none that do it good. There's none that seeketh after God. They've all gone out of the way. They're all unprofitable. I mean, God, don't you think I have some amount of profit? I have something to offer. We need to keep that attitude that there's nothing good that I've done. There's nothing that I bring. I'm standing before Christ, and if I'm standing based on my own works, I will not be able to stand and I will be spending an eternity separated from Him in hell. But if I'm standing there on the blood of Jesus Christ, covered by His, His redemption for my sin, then I can stand boldly before Him because of what Christ has done for me. The poor in spirit understand their inability to save themselves. This is the exact opposite of pride. You're poor. In spirit. In other places, this word translated poor is translated humble. Humility. Jesus here is talking about what the people look like or what the character of the people is who are able to enter his kingdom. 
Those who are part of His kingdom are those who are poor in spirit. Again, when I hear that word, and you hear that word, you might think, boy, does that mean they're sad? Does that mean that they're just run down and beat down? No. They understand that they have a problem of sin. They understand their inability to save themselves. And I think they also understand that they are the recipients of the kingdom of heaven. It says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. James 2.5 says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him. Praise God that we are heirs of the kingdom of heaven. And it is because of the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Now, this may be a very straightforward message. It's simple to me, but it's a simple reminder that I need on a regular basis. Jesus, as he was preaching to these Jewish people there on the mountainside that day, Many of them understood the Pharisee system of religion. Keep this law, do this, do that. Some probably carried some amount of arrogance as their own ability to keep those laws. Perhaps there were some Pharisees in that crowd that day who felt good about themselves because of all that they had done. Perhaps there were others in the crowd who were trying to attain unto that Pharisaical level. And Jesus really is taking all that away. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You can't earn your way to God. You can't work your way to God. If you have a problem of sin, you, have the, you are unable to save yourself. But the poor in spirit are recipients of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said this to his disciples, and we'll close with these verses tonight. John 14, verses 1 through 6. Let not your heart be troubled. If ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. He's talking about this kingdom that he's preparing, this kingdom of heaven. He's going to prepare it. And he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know. And the way ye know, Thomas saying unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Remember back at the beginning, I said in this first beatitude, it's, it's in the present tense, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As a believer in Jesus Christ, do you and I get to experience all the wonders and joys and blessings of heaven? right here and right now? No. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're saved tonight, are you already a part of that kingdom of heaven? Is your name written down in the Lamb's book of life? Are you able to, while not enjoy all the wonders of heaven, are you able to enjoy some of the blessings of being part of that kingdom of heaven? 
right here and right now? I think we are. And I think the more we understand that as we see the poverty in our own spirit, right, our own inability to gain favor with God, our, the reality of our own sin that we need to live in a constant state of, of, of confessing our sin to God and living in a right relationship with Him, I think then even more so we get to appreciate the fact that we are recipients of the kingdom of heaven. No, we don't get to enjoy it all just yet. But we get to have the taste of it right now. We get to experience what it's like to have the Holy Spirit's indwelling. The Holy Spirit's direction in our heart. The Word of God as it speaks to us. The comfort that even when the world seems to be falling apart, that this is not our home. We're just passing through. We're part of another kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Which kingdom are you a citizen of tonight? Is your citizenship sure? Is your name written down in the Lamb's book of life? If it's not, it can be. Trust in the Lord. Jesus said it, I am the way. How do you get to the kingdom? How, how do you get to those mansions that he's preparing for? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you've never received Jesus Christ, you've never trusted in him, you can. He will forgive you. And if you have, then take great comfort in the fact that you are part of that kingdom. Don't forget to live a life that isn't about exalting yourself. Live a life that is demonstrating a poor in spirit attitude. Not taking credit for what you've done. Not taking credit for something that you somehow think you've earned, but rather giving all the glory to God. Because if you will, he says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And he says, you are blessed. You're blessed. There's happiness. There's joy in knowing that you're part of God's kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and thank you for the message that Christ preached on that day. Thank you that we can have that message recorded for us in the pages of Scripture to encourage us and to help us today. Thank you for your truth that withstands the test of time and that applies, yes, to those Jewish people on the hillside that day, but it applies to us today. Help us to take your truth that you've given us. Help us to live it out, to trust in it, to build our life on the Lord Jesus Christ because everything else is just sinking sand. In Jesus' name I pray.